Hello and welcome to a special edition of the Brookings Cafeteria, a podcast about ideas and the experts who have them. I'm joined today by three experts on politics, Congress, and U.S. elections to get their insights and analysis about the 2014 midterm elections. They are Tom Mann, Sarah Bender, and Bill Galston, all senior fellows in governance studies here at Brookings. I'm delighted to welcome you all to the podcast. Thank you, Fred. Let me start by asking you to offer one or two word description of what happened last night, thinking that, of course, Democrats are going to hate it, Republicans are going to love it, but I'm interested to hear what you all have to say. Let me start with you, Bill. Challenging. Red tsunami. Red tsunami. All right, Sarah? Oddly predictable. Okay. Tom, did anything surprise you about the results yesterday? It did. I was uh, most surprised by how races that were expected to be toss-ups or a one-point lead turned into a four or five or seven-point Republican lead. It happened, or victory. It happened uh, in the races for the Senate and uh, in a number of the governorships as well. So what we what we had was, uh, you know, a tipping effect, but it, it, it was more than tipping. Uh, uh, Nate Silver would, would call it a, a, a Democratic bias in the polls this time, uh, favoring, you know, the polls favoring Democrats beyond what their strength was. Whatever the case is, uh, Republican strength was clearly underestimated uh, before the election. We, we thought they would win enough seats to take a majority in the House. Uh, we thought they might lose a little ground in the governorship and win maybe eight, 10 seats in the House, and they did better on all three of those counts. Sarah, you just called it oddly predictable. Does that, does that mean that you weren't surprised by the outcome? Well, no, I agree with Tom about the surprise of the depth and the breadth of the Republican gain here. But keep in mind, these are or were midterm elections. And one of the sort of bedrock patterns we see all the way back through the 20th century is midterm elections, there's a penalty on the pres- president's party. And yeah, the president's party loses seats. And political scientists debate why that is. Uh, but to some degree, yeah, there was certainly a, a, the tsunami element to it, the wave element to it here. But we probably shouldn't be surprised to see that type of penalty taken out on the president's party. And, and what about you, Bill? What, what do you see that's challenging about the results? I think it's a challenge to the entire political system uh, to perform better than it has in the past four years. And the American people were absolutely clear on that point going into the election. And interestingly, the incoming Senate Majority Leader, Mitch McConnell, has referred to that in his two initial public statements since the the extent of victory became clear. Uh, And he, who is now by some margin the most important Republican in, in Washington, has pledged to restore the Senate. as a functioning body uh, where votes on amendments are permitted to all uh, and where the work of the committees is respected. He gave a speech to that effect some months ago. Uh, 
which was little noted, but he has long remembered it. And, uh, uh, and so it's, there, these results are a challenge to the Republicans who've been saying for quite some time that the only obstacle to an effective nation's capital uh, is the, uh, the outgoing Senate Majority Leader and the President. And you wrote last week that voters were coming into the polls frustrated, angry, and anxious. You also called this a chaos election. So did you see that play out yesterday? As I looked at the, the exit polls, I saw an enormous amount of frustration and anger at government and anxiety about the future. I mean, barely one-fifth of the American people said that they expected the next generation to have a better life than they themselves do. That, you know, for a country that prides itself on the idea of each generation doing better than the next, that loss of confidence in the future uh, is a huge warning flare for the entire political system. We have to do something about that. And to, to anyone, uh, I know President Obama wasn't on the ballot, but how much was he a factor in the, uh, in the races and in the outcome? <laughs> oh, as Sarah said, uh, his significant position uh, was with respect to his party. His party was on the ballot, and in midterm elections, uh, the president's party uh, pays a penalty. The penalty is higher, the, the less popular the president is, and being closer to 40% than 50% approval hurt. Uh, it's, it's, it's a greater penalty if people, as Bill suggested, are very anxious about, about their economic uh, future. So, uh, sure, but you could do separately uh, an analysis of how the economy is doing objectively and say relative to other countries, we're coming through this in good shape and I could give you eight positive indicators, but um, it doesn't really matter. The, the public sort of tends to be visceral and blunt in its assessment and it doesn't really matter whose fault it is. In fact, they rate the Republicans in Congress lower than the president and the Democrats in Congress. But nonetheless, the pattern of voting because of the, the reduced electorate and the referendum on the president uh, produces, uh, uh, produces a real black eye for the president and his party, no question. So if it's a uh, referendum on the president and his party, what issues that Republicans did run on and now that they have a uh, uh, governing majority in Congress, are they going to have to do something about it? Well, I think first we might say that really Republicans didn't per se run on issues. I think really they, they knew that they could win by putting this as a referendum on the administration and the Democrats' ability to govern, all right? Whether it was the, the incompetence of the rollout of health care reform whether it was the Ebola response, the ISIS, right? It doesn't really matter precisely what it was. Republicans found a way to wrap it all up together and say, look, this isn't a government that doesn't work and look at our, and doesn't work for the middle class whose incomes have been stagnant for almost a decade. So I think it's less a matter, and that's how they nationalized it, right? Not nationalizing it over, we need an energy policy, but nationalizing it over, this isn't working, we need an alternative. 
It's like the old uh, cliche, the old story about uh, these two young people uh, who, who killed uh, their grandparents and, uh, uh, and threw themselves on the mercy of the court uh, as orphans. Uh, it, it turns out Republicans had a consistent message for the last six years, uh, uh, which was uh, everything Obama is doing is wrong, and to block as much as they could. And starting after the 2010 election, they could block everything. And, and so uh, they succeeded. The opposition politics, contentless, without alternatives or proposals, got them to the majority in the House and the Senate. Now, uh, as Bill was suggesting, uh, we'll see if anything comes of that of a positive sort. Um, I'm less optimistic than he, but hope springs eternal around here. Well, uh, in the press conference that Senator McConnell just gave, uh, he reported that he had just uh, finished talking with the president. It was a phone call. He and Speaker Boehner will be meeting with the president. and that he got the strong impression that there were at least two areas right away where the two political parties uh, could collaborate. Uh, one was in the area of trade and the other was in the area of tax reform. Now that is, from the standpoint of cooperation, the low-hanging fruit, but those are not trivial items. Uh, they have a significant economic impact. And if if the Senate, the House, and the President were to get off to a better start in 2015 uh, than, than they did in either 2011 or 2013, uh, that could set in motion a more virtuous circle to counteract the vicious circles that have dominated our politics. I, you know, I, I don't know what level of confidence to attach to this temporary opening. Uh, those are not simple items. Uh, taxes, taxes, and trade, uh, but they they are items where both political parties have spent a certain amount of time refining their positions, so they don't have to start with a blank slate, and they pretty much know each other's moves. And they're both somewhat bipartisan issues: trade promotion authority or trade uh, agreements and, and tax reform. Uh, well, bi bipartisan, but in an interesting way, they're issues that unite portions of the two parties and divide both parties internally. In, with, importantly, the Republicans uh, uh, more on the side of the trade authority and agreements than Democrats. So it would be a Democratic president building a coalition primarily with uh, Republicans. Uh, Reminds me of the good old days at the beginning of the Clinton administration. <laughs> uh, but uh, uh, there was a very interesting sequence of events last January, which I'm sure Tom and Sarah remember very well, where in the course of the State of the Union address, uh, President Obama requested what is known as Trade Promotion Authority, which, which gives the executive branch substantial leeway in negotiating the text of treaties that Congress would then consider. And within 24 hours, the Senate Majority Leader of his own party uh, told him to forget about it. So it'll be interesting to see if the Republicans offer him trade promotion authority, whether he can take yes for, the an for an answer, even if the rest of this party doesn't like it very much. And I think he'll have to. Just to keep in mind, some of the demise of that trade um, 
Commercial Authority and the Trans-Pacific Partnership, whatever it was, um, was because of divisions in the Republican Party, right? That sort of this uh, was a little a little odd and unusual, as some people's claim was unconstitutional to give the president right that type of authority. But there are fissures in the Republican Party, yeah. and the question is, can they really right that establishment a angle of the party? Can they hold it together to get free trade? Yeah, well, it's, it's Fisher cut bait <laughs> time now. <laughs> this is a. a it seems to me a broader uh, issue is uh, there are House Republicans and Senate Republicans. Uh, mm -hmm. McConnell mm -hmm. may have a little more room in the Senate than Boehner has uh, in the House, and I think it will be difficult to put together packages that uh, find their way to the president. I, I, I read today in a conservative outlet that uh, the strategy should not be to do anything with the president. Do not do trade uh, bills. Do not do tax reform. Uh, the goal should be to get a Republican elected in 2016. Right. And, and anything you do to make uh, Obama look good is the same kind of thing that we've had for the past six years. Uh, <laughs> well, that's one, that's one way of parsing the politics, but I can think of others. Uh, and, uh, you know, it, it, it's, it seems to me that, you know, that Senator McConnell is on to something when he suggests that the capacity to show that one is a governing party after so many years of anti-governing is not trivial. But Sarah, I'm sorry. I, I was going to say, there's, and maybe I'm reading too much into this. There's a story in the New York Times this morning, right? Uh, victory assured GOP to act fast in pr promoting agenda in Congress. Quote from Senator Roy Blunt from member of the party leadership. I, maybe I'm parsing this too closely, but it, he did say, I think it really becomes important to appear to want to be a governing party rather than a complaining party. And so what they have two options here. They can actually be a governing party or they can try to appear to, appear to want to be a governing party. And I think that they're choices that have to be made and it's complicated by divisions within the Senate yeah, Republican yeah, yeah, yeah. Conference. No question. So I, I don't think... Mitch McConnell is the key to all of this, quite frankly, and I don't think uh, John Boehner is the key. Uh, sort of the key is the more extended Republican Party network and the constituencies that speak to members of the House and the Senate, and their message has nothing to do with uh, working with the president on serious problems confronting the country. They you know, they want to stick his legislation down his throat. Mm -hmm. uh, and there will be ample efforts to, uh, to do that, to show that they can put something before him and just invite his, his veto. I think it's inevitable that that will happen. But I think there will also be a tier of issues in, in which they'll, uh, the insurgents won't be as wedded to and they'll mm -hmm. have room to do something. Uh, similarly, the, the president is, I assume, will, will be strong, will be clear about party differences and, and, uh, and what's happened under divided party government while at the same time trying to harvest a, a few pieces of legislation. Let's, we're not repealing uh, extreme partisan polarization. It's ideological, it's strategic. Uh, the world has not changed as a result of, of this election. And, and I think it's, it's not gonna be pretty. Uh, I could imagine showdowns over the budget and potential 
shutdowns again. These things are possible. And to that, you had uh, Senator Ted Cruz saying this week, and he said more recently, last night, that uh, he wants to pursue every possible means to repeal Obamacare. He wants to throw amendments at, at the president and kind of dare him to, uh, to veto them. But then you have the House Majority Leader, uh, Kevin McCarthy, uh, saying that we need, basically we need to prove we can govern or there won't be a Republican president in 2016. Well, that's, go that's going to be the debate within the party. And I think, I think Tom is right about the kinds of messages that will be coming in from the country. But there are other kinds of messages that will also be coming in from the country. Uh, the Pew Research Center does a very interesting study every couple of years where it, yeah, it, it goes through a very fine-grained analysis to establish different typologies of groups of voters. And it turns out that there, in the Republican Party, there are two dominant groups that are about equally populous. Uh, and one of them is, is what might be called the Ted Cruz faction of the party. And the other is what might be called the Mitch McConnell faction of the party. And what's interesting about 2014 is that the McConnell faction, the establishment Republicans, really did their best, and their best was pretty good, to take over the nominating process and to screen out uh, the sorts of candidates whose extremism would probably doom them to defeat in close races. Uh, and, uh, and I wouldn't be surprised to find that with one or two exceptions, the people coming into the Senate uh, will, be, uh, will be more sympathetic to the McConnell approach. It'll, that's a very interesting question because let's take two, two examples. Tom Cotton, uh, who beat Mark Pryor in Arkansas, and uh, Joni Ernst uh, in, in Iowa. Mm -hmm. uh, by any objective standards, these are quite extreme Tea Party uh, politicians. Their, their record, their position, they have embraced the most uh, almost farcical of conspiracy theories, but they're good campaigners and, and they, uh, they wanted to appear to be reasonable, but in fact they haven't been at all. Now, I mean, Mitch made made peace with the Tea Party by basically embracing their positions but not their tactics. Uh, and this is now going to be tricky for him to be a statesman and moderate. Is the agenda of the Republican Party move with the Tea Party? It's only a question of, of tactics and strategy and how you appear uh, to be to the electorate. I think, I think we all and everyone should judge, uh, judge on the basis of, uh, of the substance of what they try to accomplish. No doubt about that. Sir, how do you think uh, the, in, the new Senate Majority Leader McConnell is going to deal with these, uh, these freshman senators? I think there's at least 10. Tom pointed out that at least two of them are uh, more on the Tea Party side, plus you have uh, some other ones like Ted Cruz who are already in his caucus. Uh, he wants to restore regular order. How is he going to do that? Uh, that's one of these great, great unknowns, right? There's been this call for, well, first of all, when we say regular order in the Senate, no one actually knows <laughs> what that means, but I'll use the term anyway. Um, but if it means a going back and allowing committees to generate, incubate public policies and bills, right, rather than having a top-down leadership-oriented system, that, that's one element of a regular order. The second is on, is on the floor, whether there is an opening of the, of the amendment 
process whereby both parties are allowed really uh, to put their amendments, amendments on, the, on the floor. And so the, the question is, you know, it all gets back to what, what the Republicans want to achieve, right? And whether they want to have this a messaging battle, in which case they might welcome all these amendments on the floor, right? Or whether they actually want to be, be more constructive. Um, it's a tough it's a tough call. It's just not these institutional arrangements. They, you know, they don't just we don't just plop them down and they they work their will. We plop them down because we want them to do, to do something, and so I think that's a tough one, right? It's possible he gives the space to the finance committee or ways and means in the House to kind of work on tax reform, uh, but it could be circumvented by the leadership. Harry Reid filled the amendment tree uh, to keep. Uh, McConnell from offering so-called wedge amendments that would, Reid thought, harm the electoral prospects of some of his uh, uh, members representing red states. And how did that work out? It didn't, it didn't work too well. When you have broad forces operating, you can't do that. But McConnell will be under pressure, uh, given the makeup of the class up for election, Senate class in, in 2016, he'll be under pressure to keep Democrats from putting vulnerable Republican senators at, uh, at risk with, with the more open amendment process. So it'll be interesting to see mm -hmm. because leaders are mainly followers. They're, Harry Reid is popular in his own party, even though the country may despise him because he does the bidding of his members, and McConnell's going to have to remember that as well. Bill referred to two uh, issues on which uh, the Congress and the President might find some common ground to pass some uh, legislation, to pass some laws, trade, tax reform. What about areas where it's just going to be off the table, and namely judicial confirmations and administrative confirmations? Well, again, there's sort of two views out in the world. One is that the Republicans will feel, it'll be the same old Republican Party. They'll feel no compulsion whatsoever to allow Obama to put temporary appointments into the executive branch, say, well, it's the question of the Attorney General we can come back to, or judicials uh, to put federal judges for lifetime appointments on the bench, right? There's one argument that says, look, the calculation is why fill those seats, right? Why, which have an impact on public policy. Why fill those seats? Why not keep them open in hopes we, could, we gain the White House? The alternative argument is that actually, you know, re Republicans have been voting for Obama judges. They've been voting against cloture. They've been voting against pulling them up on the floor. But then, since it only takes 51 votes to put judges on the floor anymore, then they vote for confirmation. And some of these are Republican, essentially, sponsors. Republican senators have essentially promoted particular judges for Obama to nominate. So I, th I think, you know, if you're a Republican senator, the bar associating back. Bar Association back home says, we got this wonderful guy, what can you do to get John on the bench, right? There, there are pressures on Republican senators, right, to put, to put moderates and conservatives onto the bench, and perhaps Obama will nominate them. So I, I don't think the process shuts down entirely, uh, but again, some of this is, is up to the Republicans and how willing they are uh, to do the, the sort of nuts and bolts of governance when much of that conference is kind of anti-government. We've talked a lot about the Senate, and we, and we haven't talked so much about some of the other uh, categories, uh, and, and Tom, this might go to your red tsunami uh, characterization. Um, the House is set to have the largest GOP majority probably since Harry Truman. Um, the Dem Democrats lost four governorships. The Republicans uh, uh, held spotlight races in places like Wisconsin and Michigan and Florida and even Kansas with, with a very unpopular governor there. 
Um, Republicans also made gains in state legislatures across the country, you know, which Grover Norquist says is probably the more important place to, to wage retail politics. Um, what do you all make of, of that phenomenon here at the time of the midterms moving forward for governance and politics in the country? Uh, yeah, I, I think it's very important what happens uh, outside the Senate. Uh, the House uh, has a larger uh, Republican majority, uh, but it, it, it also has uh, enlarged the numbers of its um, sort of insurgents. Uh, and it, so it's not going to be easy for Boehner. He's got a little more flexibility, but if he's interested in writing law rather than passing symbolic bills that will never become law, then he ought to be showing signs early of seeking some Democratic support mm -hmm. because mm -hmm. without Democratic support, he's unlikely to get a President Obama to sign the legislation that moves through. So once again, if he tries to play it just uh, using Republicans to produce a floor majority, then it's a return to what we've seen over the last four years. If he shows some real appetite from doing business uh, that is writing law rather than campaigning, uh, it, it has to entail some Democrats as well. So that's a, a good thing to, important thing to look for. I think uh, we might have had a signal had Governor Brownback and Governor Walker, even Governor Scott uh, lost that they've really gone too far and, and you know, they even even more moderate conservative Republicans in their states were unhappy with some of the things uh, uh, they did. And it, it might have put a break on the ideological uh, extremism, which we see in some states. This is not, it's the unified Republican governments that have provided some of the most conservative uh, uh, policies, and it's not clear they will sell well in a presidential election. So strength for the Republican Party, yes, but vulnerability as well, because they're, they're showing their most extreme side uh, as a presidential election uh, grows closer. I'm startled by the number of deep blue states that now have Republican governors. And legislatures. Maryland, and legislatures. And legislatures. Uh, and I mean, you can't, you can't get a whole lot bluer <laughs> than New Massachusetts, Maryland, and Illinois. And look what happened. And it's only in the past 72 hours that any observers began to think that Larry Hogan, the Republican, might be the next governor of Maryland, and when the votes were counted, it wasn't even close. Yeah. I mean, this is stunning. And until 48 hours before the election, who imagined that Mark Warner would be having his political near-death experience? I mean, this is amazing, right? There were two million votes cast for you know, a respected, popular, former governor, uh, bipartisan, consensus-seeking senator, Mr. Virginia, and he has a 12,000-vote edge? This is, you know, this is absolutely amazing. What does it mean? I mean, I agree with you. I was stunned by the yeah, Warner yeah. result, but it, it suggests to me that 
this election is less about ideology and less a yearning for centrists and moderates than it was an anti-Obama vote. People are just upset for a whole lot of things, and Democrats happen to belong uh, to the president's party, and they took a, a beating. But there's no sign of ideological parsing among uh, among the candidates that I could see. Well, let me quibble with you a little bit, which, as is my want, uh, <laughs> and, and that is uh, the Maryland election was about something. Okay, you know, and you know. Anthony Brown ran on a let us continue. He was running for Martin O'Malley's third term right. at a time when Martin, Martin O'Malley's public approval rating was down around the president's level. Uh, and, you know, and running for the third term of a governor who would not have received a third term himself had he run for it turned out to be, turned out to be very difficult. But, but there was a reason for that, and that is that uh, you know, Hogan had one issue. Taxes in Maryland are too high. And it turned out, I believe, that a fair number of people agreed with that assessment uh, because Governor O'Malley, uh, for sincere reasons having to do with the public agenda that he believed in, did increase taxes on all sorts of people for all sorts of purposes. Uh, and. Uh, and a crucial portion of the Maryland electorate decided, to quote Tom, enough was enough. And uh, uh, I find it a little harder to understand uh, you know, how Mark, Martha Coakley managed to snatch defeat from the jaws of victory a second straight time in Massachusetts. In Illinois, Governor Quinn has been neither indicted nor convicted. That puts him in a very elite, <laughs> very elite circle, you know, of, of of Illinois governors. He should have been he should have been reelected easily on the basis of that alone. But instead, he lost by five percentage points. And look what happened in Maine. Look at what happened in Maine, where someone who, were he not governor, I believe, would be in a white jacket against his will, uh, beat a perfectly respectable moderate Democrat. I mean, it's... It's really depressing <laughs> yeah. uh, uh, when you look at results like the main result. Here it was again a third party uh, candidate who, if he had not run, would probably have had led to the loss uh, of the incumbent governor. But He's not just extreme, he's crazy. Yeah. Uh, I, was, and, I was trying to hint at that and, ever so delicately. And so <laughs> let's, let's not give the public too much credit for making discerning judgments in this election year. They, they may have wanted that. You know, they may have discerned so I, I did pick up my daughter from a uh, post-Halloween sleepover in the neighborhood of Montgomery County where I don't live, but I was struck last, last week by the number of Larry Hogan signs, unless it was his aunt and uncle, <laughs> his kids in that neighborhood, it was really a, a I thought you were going to say Larry Hogan masks. <laughs> 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 I didn't go out that night. Uh, but one way to think about all these sort of 
subnational level developments, right. the, the unusual state developments, whether it's Illinois or the uh, Maine or the state legislatures, where I think it's 60% of them are controlled by, uh, by Republicans, is a concept that one of our political science colleagues, Dan Hopkins at Georgetown, talks the nationalization of American politics. Right? It's not just the polarization at the national level, it's that at the subnational level, we've been, it's been nationalized. Right? We don't see individual governors simply on what they've done in office, but we also see them as part of red or blue, that these national level politics help filter down and they help determine these outcomes. So if you look at state legislative uh, elections over time, it looks an awful lot like national uh, mm -hmm. congressional elections. But there are variations. Oh, for, and, for sure. You know, and governors to some extent make their own beds and lie them. And for example, uh, look at John Kasich in Ohio. He got reelected with 64% of the vote as opposed to Scott Walker's 52%. And why is that? Uh, because Kasich made a couple of decisions that important, big, tough decisions within his own party uh, that distinguished him from you know, the more completely conservative portions of his party. And he, he a after being rebuffed by the voters, he relented on a campaign to you know, to continue to stick it to state employees. And even more to the point, he agreed to expand Medicaid and invoked Christianity as his justification. That drove a number of Republicans <laughs> absolutely mad, uh, but the, the results speak for themselves. 64% in your classic bellwether state that's closer to being a microcosm of the country uh, somebody should explain to me why he's not a serious candidate for the presidential nomination of his party. He's too reasonable. He expanded Medicaid, <laughs> and that may hurt him. But this was an amazing feat uh, because the legislature, the Republican, was against this, and he conjured up some powers of a commission that he controls to... Uh, <laughs> To, to put it through, it yeah. was, I, th I think he ought to be uh, considered a, a, a leader of, uh, of some future and potential as a consequence. Former of, uh, chair of the House actions. Budget Committee, as I recall. Yeah. 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 Sounds qualified to me. Well, I do want to get to the 2016 election because now that's on everyone's mind. It probably started today. But uh, I want to ask you all first uh, to finish off the conversation about what happened yesterday to put it into some historical context. I, I saw somewhere that every two-term president uh, since World War II has served his last two years with a Congress completely controlled by the opposite party. So nothing new there. But this does feel somehow, at least today, new. Well, I think the, the newness, to the extent that there's newness here, it's the depth of that Republican wave and, um, in places where we, where we might not have expected it. Um, and that's really... Yeah, but, but having to... Uh, Govern with the other party and entirely in control of, of Congress is, uh, is is something we've come to accept. But for for decades, uh, divided party government provided a setting for getting some things done, not as efficiently on the pressing priorities of uh, of the country. But a lot of things got done in Reagan's last two years with a. Democratic Congress, for example, but now that the parties are ideologically and strategically so opposed to one another, um, where where it's good and evil and black and white, it's uh, it's 
whatever you do, don't marry to a son or daughter. Uh, don't marry a member of the other party. This, this is tribalism, and it, it makes it difficult. It's why I believe the most important things that will happen in the next two years are the executive and administrative uh, steps taken by the president alone. And uh, if he tries uh, and has any success in doing it and in helping play his explainer-in-chief role uh, as to what's going on, what, how do the parties differ, um, and, and what's, uh, what's at stake, and why doesn't divided party government work? So I, th I think it's more preparation for 2016 than I think it is real accomplishments uh, through the legislative process. We shall see. Okay, let's talk about 2016 then, uh, as we as we exit this podcast. Um, what are the implications of the result for the 2016 race for president, contest for the Senate, and, and other political contests? Well, uh, first of all, these results enable us to get a clearer fix on who will be eligible to present him or herself for the presidential nomination. For example, had Scott Walker been defeated, uh, I think that certainly his credibility as a potential presidential candidate would have been destroyed, perhaps only temporarily. He's a young man, but he would not have been viable in, in 2016. Conversely, if the governor of Ohio uh, wins re-election with 64%, uh, if he has, if, if he ever looks in a mirror and sees a president staring back. This might well this might well be well be the time. And I mention I mention those governors because I think that people with executive experience, people who can say I can get it done based on having gotten it done, uh, are going to have an advantage in the particular circumstances of of 2016. And by contrast, I think there will be a bear market for first-term senators, however eloquent they may be? I, in my mind, the biggest uh, uh, connection between what happened uh, yesterday or during the course of the pre-election early balloting and, and, and mail-in and 2016 are, are the, the new majorities, the size of the Republican majorities in the House and the Senate. Uh, if you could imagine Hillary Clinton uh, running, winning the nomination, the economy improving, and winning the election uh, is one thing, but imagine her winning and carrying to majority the House and the Senate is, is, uh, is a little more far-fetched now. It's just too big a haul under these uh, polarized times. Not impossible with a landslide, but we don't have landslide elections. If a, if a presidential candidate wins 52, 53% of the vote, that's a big victory. So it becomes much harder to make up the, the deficit and produce a unified uh, uh, democratic government. Uh, uh, on the other hand, if, if Republicans nominate an electable uh, candidate for president and the economy is shaky, 
you can imagine the possibility of a unified Republican government. And then what they do is going to be noticed by a whole lot of people in this country. Well, one thing to keep in mind, I think, is how, what, in what ways 2016 will be different than 2014. A, the math will be different, at least for the Senate, right? It will be a little more, a little tougher for the Republicans in theory, right? The, the Republicans in, tried to get reelected in blue states, so take a Mark Kirk, say, from Illinois, if we still want to <laughs> call Illinois the, the blue state. So the map will look different, but also the electorate in a presidential election year, right, that is of obviously the challenge, at least for the Democrats, to make it a very different electorate, not quite so old, and a uh, younger electorate and a more diverse electorate. That's, that's their challenge. So, uh, but I agree with uh, Tom here, right, uh, the, the, the very steep hurdle for Democrats to take back uh, the House or the Senate absent, or certainly the House, right, absent economic or, you know, other type of crises that would really change people's minds about the Democrats. Oh, well, this has been a, a very enlightening and fun conversation with the three of y'all, and I want to remind uh, my podcast listeners uh, to visit the Brookings website, brookings.edu, to find uh, more analysis and commentary from the three of them and from uh, many of our colleagues here at the Brookings Institution. If you have any questions uh, for the guests of this or any other podcast, please send an email to bcp at brookings.edu. Bill, Tom, Sarah, I appreciate your time and thank you very much. You're welcome. Thanks. Thank you.